Well, this sermon has absolutely nothing to do with finances, but this morning, um, when I got up, I thought, you know what? When people come and speak to the chair special speakers, they sell their books. And so I brought my bestseller, uh, Freedom from Financial Funk. It is on the top bestseller list of me. Um, I've written one book, and this is by far outsold any of the others. So this is a bestseller. They're out on the table. They're $5, but they're free. If you can't afford $5, just take one. Okay. Uh, to no way competition to Dave Ramsey. I do have a double portion over him. That video started saying they lost everything. I've lost everything twice. Okay, <laughs> way better than him. Um, but in all reality, a lot of what Dave Ramsey does is so needed in the body in teaching people to get out of debt and financial principles. What this book is more about is ways to create money and ideas to get out of debt. Okay, because you need both. You need on the one side to be able to create more wealth, and on the other side, you need to be able to get out of the debt you're in and, and look at the size of your butter patty, which is talks about. So, if you want a book, they're out there, and this has nothing to do with that. All right? Um, let's see here. Like the sound effects? All right. So, we'll see how to do this. I always have a problem whenever I preach because I gotta take my glasses off to see, but then on to see you. So it's always like this weird thing, but I'll just do it. So here's what happened. Last week, Chris, my son, who doesn't live with us anymore, we are empty nesters, you can say amen. Um, after 38 years of not being empty nesters. Okay, so we're empty nesters, and Chris comes over uh, with a friend, and his friend's name is Jordan. And I was going to turn to him and I was going to say, oh, Jordan, do you have any idea of the significance of your name? But I didn't. Don't know why. And then Sunday, we're here in church last Sunday, and the worship's going on, and all of a sudden the Lord just speaks to me about the significance of the Jordan. And I thought, you know, I was thinking of that, and I thought, that's cool. And then I felt it so strong that I texted Byron and said, hey, do you mind if I share a word Sunday? And it worked out perfect that I can. So this is about the Jordan. Okay, the Jordan in our lives. So let me talk to you a little bit about the Jordan itself. Everybody knows about the Jordan River, right? How many people here have been to the Jordan River? Raise your hand. That's so cool. So cool. The balls are here. They're thinking, yeah, 30 times. <laughs> How many people here name is Jordan? Anybody here name Jordan? Okay. So the Jordan River begins at Mount Hermon, or Hermon, however you want to pronounce it. Okay? So at Mount Hermon is where the Jordan River actually begins. And... Mount Hermon is where many believe was Mount Sinai. They believe that they're one and the same. It was the place where God gave the law to his people. They also believe that Mount Hermon is the place of the transfiguration, the place that Jesus was transfigured into all of his glory, which would just make perfect sense, wouldn't it? The place where the law was given and the place where the grace was given and Jesus in his glory. So then, the waters from Mount Hermon, they flow down, they flow down to the Sea of Galilee, which is also called Lake Kinneret. It is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet Earth. And here's what's cool about that. The word Jordan in Hebrew is Yarden, and it means flow down or descend. Is that not cool? Okay, so we know that Jesus starts off in heaven. He was there with the Father. He was there when the earth was created. It was all created by him and through him. 
And we know that in order for us to have salvation, the Father, the Son, needed to descend and come down to us, to earth. So we start at Mount Hermon, the place of the law, the place of the transfiguration, and the waters flow down to the Sea of Galilee. Now, what is Galilee synonymous with? It's where Jesus did most, and a lot at least, of his preaching. It's also the place where Jesus announced in Capernaum when he was in that synagogue, and he announced, this is being fulfilled, you know, in your eyes. This is me. I'm Messiah. It's where he made his proclamation of who he is. And it's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet Earth. Or you could say the most humblest lake water, freshwater lake on the planet Earth. And then from there, it flows down into the Jordan River, which is the lowest river on planet Earth. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, which happens to be the lowest sea on the planet Earth and the lowest place on planet Earth. Isn't that awesome? A matter of fact, and I've got my little note here, it is 1,000, hold on, do I have it here? See, the whole glasses thing is really a funky thing, but Okay, so it is 1,410 feet below sea level. Isn't that awesome? So the, the whole idea of the Jordan being synonymous with all the lowest, the lowest river, the lowest freshwater lake, the lowest sea, and the mindset of God doing things, you know, numbers and dates and places, God is so into so totally into it. And I almost wonder if you can even over-spiritualize that. Because the more you get into the numbers, it's, it's mind-blowing. And then the more you get into the dates of different things that he's done on different dates, and then different things that have been done in different places, it, it's amazing. You don't want to discount that. You don't want to say, oh, you're being too spiritual or you're trying to find you know, the Lord in something he's not. I think it's very, very hard to be too over-spiritual in those things. So let's, let's look at specifically, let's look at the Jordan themselves, okay? The Jordan is a place where things go from being okay to being good or from being good to being great. Every time we see in Scripture of a passing through the Jordan, something significant happens. There's, ne there's not a time where it just says, so they came to the Jordan and they crossed over, and nothing important happened. It's significant every time they go through the Jordan. They, every time they go through the lowest place on earth, river. So let's look at the very first place, and I'm going to have to turn around and look at these Scriptures too. But Joshua 3... What do we have up there? 13 or 13 through 17? Five. Okay, 13. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests, who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand in a heap. Okay, so here's what you got to figure, okay? Talk about going from okay to great, or from bad to good. This is the time, this was actually April 9th. This is cool because I was saved on April 9th. And this was April 9th, and we know that because it was on the 10th day of the first month, and the first month in Hebrew is Nisan, and it's April, or it was before the rabbis changed it to September. But during this time it was. So we're looking at April 9th. 
the Jews have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I think Will said something about, or no, it was Jacob said, you know, if you don't have a plan, you're just kind of wandering. Well, they, they wandered for 40 years. And now here they are. They're ready to cross into the promised land. Moses is dead. They've got a new leader. Everything is fresh. All the people that didn't believe before are all now dead. And this is a generation of, of those that came out of Egypt and they're ready to cross into the promised land. And God tells them, this is what you're going to do. First of all, by the way, I've picked this month because this is the month the Bible says that the river overflowed its borders. If you've ever been to a river overflowing its borders, it is not common peaceful. It's not the place you have the picnic. You're kind of fearful because there's such power in that muddy, in that muddy rushing water. Well, it probably is muddy, but in that rushing water. And this is what God says. He says, I want you to walk up to that Jordan and I want you to just tip your toe in and I'll make the waters part. Well, he doesn't say that. He says, when the sole of your foot touches the water, they part. So here's what they had to do. They're carrying the ark of God, okay? And they're having to do that. Imagine how scary that would be. What happens if God does not come through and part those waters? They, the ark, and everyone with them are sucked downstream, never to be seen again. I mean, that's really mind-blowing, isn't it? But God wanted two things to happen. One, he wanted sanctification. Two, he wanted faith. Okay? So let's go to the next scripture here. And we'll read. So when, so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan and the feet of the priests who brought the Ark dipped in the edge of the waters for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. That the waters which came down from upstream stood still, rose in a heap very far away at Adam. And the city that is besides Zedotah. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arba, the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people crossed over on the opposite side into Jericho. Now, do you think it might be significant that the name of the town where the water first stopped was called Adam? Isn't that just awesome? So God is saying, okay, so the Jews are going into the promised land. The place that is almost like the garden again, right? We've got Adam and Eve in the garden, but they sin and they're thrown out of the garden. And then we have all that happens through history. And now God is saying, okay, I'm going to take my people and I'm going to bring them into the promised land. Kind of where I wanted them in the first place. So he backs the waters all the way up to Adam. And he tells his priests, you got to put the soul in there. Okay. But before that, and I'm not sure if that scripture is not on there. Is there any, what's our next scripture, Denise? Or not Denise. Three, 3.17. Then, um, 317, uh, where does it talk about them sanctifying themselves? It should have been actually earlier. Yep. Ah, there it is. And Josiah, Josiah, and Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do many wonders among you. So that's April 9th. April 9th is the day that they were to sanctify themselves. Now, it was so cool, everything that Jacob Early said and everything that, that Will said about today, because we don't have to sanctify ourselves. You know, we, in Hebrew we pray Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe who sanctifies us by his commandments. Well, 
For a lot of people, when they hear that, a lot of people don't hear that, but a lot of people, when they hear that, they think of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. But if you've ever read Leviticus and Numbers, you realize that there weren't Ten Commandments. There were tens of thousands of commandments. It was overwhelming. You want to sanctify yourself? You want to, you know, people that believe that their good works are what gets them to heaven because they obey the law? That means that you've got to figure out which animal you're going to sacrifice on which day and what other animals need to be sacrificed at certain times of the year and that you have to travel this far to be in this, in this particular feast day and then you have to bring this much grain and this type of grain and wear this kind of clothes and have it dyed with this kind of color and on and on and on and on. And if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole part of the law. This is how we used to obtain salvation. Think of how awesome grace is. Think of how awesome the blood of Jesus is. So Joshua said, before you cross through the Jordan, before I take you from 40 years of wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, and I bring you, or God brings you through me, into the promised land, the first thing you need to do is sanctify yourself. And the second thing you need to do is have faith. Because the water is overflowing its borders. And you need to have faith. So that's the first time. Well, is there a way to keep this thing so it doesn't keep going off? Put me in the code every time. Nobody's answering, so nobody answers. Okay. <laughs> All right. In the Passover, there's four cups. Four cups you drink from the Passover. And for those of you who don't know, you participated in the Passover this morning. Everybody did when you drank and ate of the communion. Because what communion is, is when Jesus was having the last Passover, and he took the cup, and he took the bread, and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. That was the Passover meal. And we shouldn't disconnect the two, we should always see them as one. But in the Passover, you have four cups. First you have the cup. What's the first cup? Sanctification. It all begins with sanctification. The second cup is the cup of judgments. And the third cup is the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is the cup of love, the cup of praise. So it begins with this first cup. It begins with the cup of sanctification. Oh, Lord, come on. How do you do this? Ah, <laughs> uh, there we go. All right, I'm rocking the ball. You know what I did that? Yeah, oh, thank you so much. Okay, well, let me see my notes first. <laughs> let's see here. All right, let's go to 2 Kings 2, 6 through 9. While he fixes that thing. 2 Kings 2, 6 through 9. This is the second time that we see the Jordan. And again, there's something very specific, very important happening. And guess what? We're back at the Jordan again. This time, it's Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah is about to go from being this really cool, really profitable, really famous prophet to being the only person who never dies. Isn't that cool? He's just taken up, not in a fiery chariot, okay, he's taken up in a whirlwind. He's taken up in a whirlwind. You see the fiery chariot, but he's not taken up in it. He's taken up in a whirlwind. He's about to do this incredible thing. So it starts out, then Elijah said to him, meaning Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, Sent me out of Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. 
50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the waters, and it was divided this way and that, so the two of them crossed on dry ground. So now, here you have it again. Here you have a very significant situation where Elijah's going from the ministry he had to this incredible encounter with God where he's taken up and he doesn't die. We also see the faith because it takes faith to take your mantle and strike the Jordan and see it part. Even though he saw all these other miracles, how many miracles have we seen in our own lives? And yet every time we need another one, it takes faith again. But we see this happen. And so Elisha walks over with Elijah. Okay? Let's go to our next one. That, that's oh, and so it was. <laughs> when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elijah, ask what I may do for you before I am taken away from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit come on me. So now Elisha is about to go from being the sidekick of Elijah. Ain't it cool? We both have names that almost sound alike, Elijah. But you're about to leave. And this is what I want from you. I want a double portion. I want to go from being a guy who was the right-hand man or the sidekick of this really cool prophet. And I not only want to be like him, I want to be twice as good as him. Kind of like Dave Ramsey and me. I want to be twice. <laughs> I want to be twice as good as he is. So here's what happens here. Where are we now? Second Kings two twelve. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out. Oh, so he went up in the, in the chariot. You know, Elisha said to him, "You have to be able to see me, and if you see me go, then then you will." And Elisha did see it happen. And Elisha saw it. And he cried out, "My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen." So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Next. That's it. That's it. Oh, isn't it 1 Kings 13? What's the next one, sir? What's the next scripture say? Well, let me just say what happened in that scripture. Elijah leaves, and he's got to go back. So how does he go back? He's got to go back to the Jordan. So imagine Elijah. He's all cool. He's with Elijah. They strike the Jordan. It parts. So cool. He walks across on dry land. He sees Elijah go up in the chariot. He gets the, the mantle, the double portion. Okay? Everything is going so good. And then he's got to go back and he heads back and oh crap. The Jordan is flowing again. God didn't keep the Jordans separated. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Just imagining what it must have been like, okay, for Elijah to go there and wonder, do I got it? Am I going to be successful? Remember in Rocky 1, when he goes to his priest and he's throwing the rocks in the building there and he goes, hey, old Father Cowboy, like, you want maybe like throw down a blessing or something, you know, that you like saved my life? It's sort of like where Elijah is, right? Do I got it? After it splits, we say, yo, Adrian, I did it! He's holding You gotta get it anyway, you can. So, Elijah's there. Some people are leaving. Um, 
So Elijah's got the mantle, and the water's in the Jordan, and he was really thinking that it was going to be split when he gets back, but now he's got to do it. Imagine that faith that he had to muster. Because if Elijah's going to walk in his double portion, and Elijah has to go through his own Jordan. Isn't that so cool? And he strikes it, and the water's part, and he walks through on dry land. That's so awesome. So now we go to Matthew 3, 1 through 4. Now, Byron has preached before, and it's, it was so good, and I know he's listening, so I'm going to give him kudos for this. But he talked about how John the Baptist was this in-between. John the Baptist really wasn't Old Testament. He really wasn't New Testament. He was like the bridge between the Old and the New. Now, I don't mind the word New Testament. I love this New Covenant. I do not like the word Old Testament because Old Testament sort of has the inclination that it's passed away. It's done away with. God had this, this covenant, and then he said, ah, I'm going to scrap that one, and I'm going to do a new one. Because the Old Covenant was nothing but a foreshadowing of the completed covenant. Okay? Yes, it was the blood of bulls and goats. And now it is once and for all Jesus. But it's a fulfillment that he's brought us into. Okay? So, we have John. The first time we see John. Where's the first time we see John? Well, he's hanging out in Judea by the Jordan. And he's encouraging people because they are about, the whole world is about to walk from what was to what is. From the blood of bulls and goats to the Messiah. From obeying a law and being sanctified by commandments that you could never obey to receiving the Messiah and the grace and him paying the full price. And so where does it all begin? Back at the Jordan when he's calling people to repentance and baptizing them in the Jordan. So now, this is interesting, we have Matthew 3.15. We have Jesus coming up to John. He says to John, I want to baptize you. Or excuse me, he says to John, I want you to baptize me. And John the Baptist basically says to him, in his best Robert De Niro impression, you talking to me? I have need to be baptized of you. You're asking me to baptize you? And Jesus answers back to him, and he says, by the way, that's the last impression, okay? Jesus <laughs> answers back to him and says, permit it to be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. So Jesus, and then, of course, we know that the Spirit ascended on him like a dove, and the Father said, this is my Son, whom I am well pleased, which is the first time in the Bible that we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost all together. The Father is speaking, the Son is standing there, and in the form of a dove, or something like a dove, the Holy Ghost comes and descends on him. Isn't that awesome? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. Shema Israel, the Noel, Hedwa, the Noel, Echad means one, but Echad means unity. Three in one. How cool is that? Okay. God's name, a name for God in Hebrew is Elohim. So when you add Chim to any word, it becomes plural. So you have a singular God who is one with a name which is plural. Isn't that cool? I was free just to that up. Okay. 
always thought, is this taking liberty? But I really felt like the Lord gave me this regarding the Jordan also. There's a country called Jordan, isn't it? Okay? And I really believe that the significance of the Jordan goes beyond the river and into, by the way, isn't it so cool that Jesus ascends, descends, humble as a man, and then dies, goes into the Dead Sea for us, and is resurrected. He took it all the way from Mount Hermon, where the law was given and he was transfigured, all the way down to the Galilee, where he had his ministry, all the way down to the Jordan, where he went through it, all the way down to the Dead Sea, where he died, and then rose again. Isn't that so cool? <clears throat> well, if you're in the Dead Sea, you know that you look across and there's these beautiful purple mountains, and they are what was once Moab. And again, Byron did a great job. I'm saying this, Byron, so you'll keep me preaching. So where he talked about Ruth and how, if you remember, when Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot left, and Lot went and he went to, um, he went to Moab, and that's where his daughter slept with him, and it was a place of incest and everything else, and that's where Ruth came from, was, was Moab. That is what is modern-day Jordan. And when you're floating in the Dead Sea and you look across the beautiful purple mountains, that's the Jordan. Well, a little bit of history here. In 1917, there was this Balfour Declaration, okay? It was declared by a British Foreign Secretary, author James Balfour. And basically what it did, it was it said, you know what? The Jews don't have a homeland. The Jews need a homeland. And of course, that whole region, it was British-occupied. It was called Palestine. The reason it was called Palestine was because the Roman Emperor Herodian hated the Jews, wanted no, nothing to do with that region, to have anything to do with the Jews, and so he called it the land of the Philistines. Philistia, it became Palestine. So whenever you hear anybody preaching, and they're talking about biblical days, and they're talking about during biblical days, and they say, Palestine, feel free to get up in the middle of their sermon and rebuke them. Because maps do it I've seen Bibles with maps That have Palestine Palestine did not exist Until after Jesus and the Jews Were driven out of there in 120 The Palestinian people didn't even exist Until 1967 Did you know that? I'm not going there But I just wanted to throw it out So anyway The Balfour Declaration gave This borders of land to the Jews so that one day it could be their homeland. And then in 1920 was the British Mandate. And the British Mandate basically took the Balfour Declaration and said, hmm, that's too much land here. Let's, too much, let, let's reduce those borders. Let's get them a little bit small. The Jews don't need all this land. Heck, even today we're only, what, 16 million people? How many people in the world? Seven billion. Jews make up about 16 million. Isn't that crazy? And yet, look at Forbes. I'm just kidding. All right, so. <laughs> okay, so. Anyway, then came 1948. 1948 is when the United Nations made the declaration to establish the borders of the Jewish homeland. And they cut and cut and cut. And Israel ended up with one-sixth of one percent. Not one-sixth of the Middle Eastern land. One-sixth of one percent of the Middle Eastern land. And by the way, 60% of that, unlivable. Dry, arid desert that nobody can live in. 
Now, since then, they planted 200 million trees, and it's all beautiful and lush. And just as Ezekiel said, it's an exporter of fruits and vegetables. I think the second largest exporter of fruit and vegetables in the world. And it is just incredible because God's promises are yes and amen. But that's what happened. And immediately after they were declared a nation and uh, they sang Hot Tikvah on June 14th, June 17th. I can't remember. No, of course I don't. It's May something. <laughs> anyway, they were attacked by all their enemies. And they won. This, this little nation just became a nation. They're attacked by all their enemies, and they won. But then, in 1967, how many of you were not alive in 1967? Raise your hand. Okay. So the majority of the people in, in this room were alive in 1967 when they were attacked from the north, Syria, from the south, Egypt, from the west, from the east, Jordan, and from the west was the Mediterranean Sea. So all three nations attacked them to wipe them out. And here's what God did. First of all, Israel won. Second of all, they won in six days. And on the seventh, God rested. Is that so cool? Is that so cool? <laughs> I mean, five days, eight days, six days. And God rested. And then... They got the Golan Heights, they got the Gaza Strip, and they got Jerusalem. It's the first time in over 2,000 years, 2,000 years, this nation that had been kicked off their land for 2,000 years, they come back to Jerusalem. And I always thought that was awesome, but I never understood the significance of it until I was listening to Dr. Michael Brown one day. And this is what Dr. Michael Brown brought out. Let's look at Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Is there another scripture? No. That was it. Okay. If you are in Israel and you're up on the Mount of Olives, which is a really, really cool place because you, you're looking down, you're looking down on the Eastern Gate. You're looking down on how the Eastern Gate is sealed off because it was only 600 AD. Did you know that? Did you know that the Muslim faith only started 600 years after Jesus? 600 years? And of course, when they took over, they sealed the gate because Jesus said he was coming back through those gates. And well, we know how to keep Jesus out. Let's cement him up. <laughs> but then some other Muslim cleric came and said, you know what? He might get through there. Let's go ahead. Wait, Muslims don't have a Jewish accent. He said, let's put a graveyard in front because a holy man would never walk through a graveyard. So there's a, a graveyard in, in front of that, but then there's also the awesome Jewish graveyard in front of that. Well, if you go down this little hill and you bury your right, there's this place called the Teardrop Church that was built during the Byzantine Empire. And it was the place where they believed that Jesus had said this very thing. So Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Okay, now let's, let's go through the Mount of Olives for just a minute. The Mount of Olives was the place, okay? The Mount of Olives was the place that when Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, Baruch haba b'shem Do we not have that scripture or not? Did I just say that? What scripture? We have Luke 13, 34. Anyway, this is what Jesus says. He said to them, You will not see me again until you say, 
Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? Jesus is talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. And he's saying, until you Jews in Jerusalem see me again, you won't see me again until you recognize me as Lord. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, of course, we see the Mount of Olives again because when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on the donkey as Messiah and the people are waving, you know, the palms because they think it's a coat and they think it's, you know, the, the, the Messiah is coming and it's time, he's coming off of the Mount of Olives. And where was it that Jesus just happened to be because God's really not into places and events? Oh, yeah. When he ascends, he's on the Mount of Olives. And by the way, Anyone want to take a guess where he said he's coming back when he returns? Pretty cool, huh? So let's look at Zechariah 14, first verse 1, then verse 4, then verse 9. This is Zechariah. This is the original covenant. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved toward the north and half of it toward the south. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name is one. So that's scripture, prophecy, that the Lord is coming back. That's one of the prophecies the Jews were looking at why they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he didn't do this when he first came as a suffering servant as the Passover lamb to die for the sins and pay the price for the people. They just wanted the king that's restoring Israel. And that's one of the prophecies that talk about that. But here's the significance of this. When Jesus returns, he's returning to a Jew-filled Jerusalem. It's like a jelly-filled donut. <laughs> it's not even in the notes, it just comes to me. It's wild. It's just it's a gift. I know Jim Hill loves it. <laughs> Jesus has to come to a Jewish filled Jerusalem. That's why one sixth of one percent of the Middle Eastern land is too much. I had dinner with a Jewish lady the other day, and the guy who was with us asked, why do you think the Jews have been persecuted ever since the beginning? And it's simple. It's called Satan. But Satan knew that the promise was that the Messiah would come through the Jewish bloodline. Wipe out the Jews, you wipe out the Messiah. But he was unsuccessful with the Babylonians and with the Syrians and with the Persians and on and on. And then Jesus comes. He missed that one. But Jesus is coming again. So Let's go after the Jews again, and let's wipe them out in Russia, and in all the Middle Eastern land, and in the Holocaust. But it didn't work. We're still here. So now, okay, last front. The last front is Jesus returning where he's going to return to, a Jewish-filled Jerusalem. Get the Jews out of Jerusalem. Put those pigs into the sea, as Iran keeps saying. But you know what's really cool about Iran and Russia being in this alliance against Israel? It was prophesied in Ezekiel. It says that Iran, or excuse me, Persia, and the kings of the north are going to form an alliance to destroy Israel. But God says, but wait, 
It's actually me. <laughs> I'm putting a hook in their jaw and I'm dragging them in so that I can show who's God and who isn't. Isn't that awesome? So keep praying for Israel. Keep praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And by the way, shalom, peace, is Jesus. When you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you're not praying just for physical peace. You're praying that they would know they were silent. Okay? So, Jesus returning to Jerusalem. That's why, that's why it's so hotly contested. And that's why God has preserved it. So, here's what I wrote. Let me just read what I wrote. What is your Jordan that you've walked through? What have you gone through by faith to get to the other side, to your fulfillment? Are you continually walking through your Jordan over and over again? Because rather than submitting to the great work the Lord wants to bring you through, you've resisted him and looking at temporal comfort. A friend of mine, I was hoping Fuzz isn't here. Are you Fuzz? Okay. A friend of mine from high school, when I first got back to New York and, and I went through one of my first trials as a Christian, he said, be careful, Dean. You know if you fail this, you'll have to go through it again. You just imagine what it would have been if the Jews didn't want to cross over the Jordan because it was a flood stage. If Elijah didn't want to cross over and was never taken up in the, in the, in the whirlwind. If Elisha figured out a different route back so he didn't have to go through the Jordan. If Jesus said, yeah, I know that after I go through this, I'm going straight into a wilderness for 40 days. Don't think I want to go that. Let me try to figure out a different way. Or grumbled and complained. All these incredible things in their lives would not have happened because the Jordan was the gateway. The Jordan was the way through there. So we all have our Jordans. But some of us, and I say us, read the book, <laughs> me, have been through those Jordans so many times. And while sometimes it's different lessons learned, it's always lessons learned, and you have to go through it. The difference is, will you go through it, number one, sanctified? And let me say how easy that is. If you're here today, and you've not made Jesus the Lord of your life, then you are not sanctified. You are going to hell if you pass away today. I mean, that's blunt, but that's real. If you're here and you have sins that you struggle with, and sometimes you blow up at your wife or your husband, and, and you, you slam your brakes on when the tailgaters get too close to you like I do, or, or you tailgate those that are going too slow in front of you like I do, but you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior and your desire is to live for him, then you're sanctified. That's simple also. So that's the first step, be sanctified. Second step is to have faith. And then something the Lord spoke to me once is he said, Dean, I am less concerned with your temporal comfort than I am with your eternal destination. We see our temporal discomforts as the biggest thing. And God sees them as, come on, guys. Go through it. Don't grumble. Learn what you can. And let me bring you into this other side. So I really feel, and look at this, it's 12 o'clock. How cool is that? I really feel like a key for us is if you've been through the Jordan and you've been through it sanctified by faith without grumbling, but you haven't entered into what the Lord has for you, I think it's time to stand up and declare that. I'm sanctified. Jesus is my Lord. And I believed when I was going through that Jordan that I was going through it for a purpose. I just haven't received that purpose yet. It's time for that purpose and to stand in that. 
And if you've gone through the Jordan and you've just grumbled about it the whole way, say, Lord, I, I'm so sorry that I did that. I'd like to repent so that I don't have another Jordan to go through, if that's cool with you. But if not, I will go through the next Jordan without grumbling and complaining. So, can we stand? I do want to ask, I guess, the ministry team to come up and also the um, worship team. Thank you very much. All I really want to do is I want to pray. And if this is the prayer of your heart, then pray with me. And then if you want prayer, the ministry team here is here to pray for you for this and for whatever else you would be praying for. Can we do something off an Aerosmith organ right now? You guys want to hear a real cool story before we go into this? Sure. Seven, 16 years old, 1977. I got this really cool Mustang, 69, in high school. I got an eight track under my dash. And my favorite eight track was Aerosmith Get Your Wings. Okay? I listened to it so much, I wore the eight track slap out. Years later, I meet this girl, Jennifer Pearson. Turns out, if you flip over the Aerosmith Get Your Wings out, you see her name on there John Pearson, her dad. Is that not cool? All that time I was listening to my future father-in-law. How cool is that? Now, do I wish Steve Tyler was my father-in-law? Yes, but I like Jenny better than Liv Tyler. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. God has a plan. He has a destiny. Oh, Abba, you can play. You can play while I pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you are our Abba Father. Your word is so incredible. Your plans and purposes for our life are ridiculous. They're so awesome. And you never, ever have us go through something except for to bring us through something. And you go with us through it and you bring us to the other side where there's blessing. So we pray right now First of all, for those that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, for those who are not sanctified and are trying to do this, this futile effort of sanctifying themselves by, by good works or, or good feelings within the universe stuff, I would rather worship the creator of the universe than the universe. <clears throat> so I pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you died for my sins. And I ask you to be the Lord of my life, to write my name with your blood in your land's book of life. And then, Lord, I pray that past Jordans that I've gone through where I've grumbled and complained or because I was just so short-sighted, I didn't see you involved in all that. I repent of that. And I ask that the next time that you bring me through a Jordan, I recognize what's going on. And I walk through it in patience, and I'm okay with it because you're there with me. And then last of all, Lord, I pray. I have seen the Jordan before me. I knew what it was. I knew what was on the other side of it. 
I put the sole of my foot in that water. And you parted that, Jordan, and you allowed me to walk through on dry land. And by faith, I did that. And I came out on the other side. But Lord, I have not seen the manifestation of what was on the other side for me. And I ask that this day you would release that. Release the manifestation of what you had waiting for me on the other side. And I receive it. I receive it. I receive it. In Jesus' name.